When are you ready for a retrospective of your work? Will that actually tell your story? John Martin Taylor's soon-to-be-available book tells not only his story, but the story of the food movement. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with John Martin Taylor. He's a peripatetic writer, food historian of the Low Country, photographer, artist, and cook. His new book, Charleston to Phnom Penh, a Cook's Journal is available for pre-order. Welcome, John. Good to talk to you. Hey, Liz. So before we start talking about your book, because obviously that's something that's coming up, but I want to know how it is you decided that food was something that you were really interested in. Well, I've always been interested in food. My parents were gourmand and even in a small little southern town, we had, I say, a wine cellar. It was actually the crawl space under the house. Eventually, my father repurposed some, some deli coolers and put them in the garage and recalibrated the temperatures, one for white and one for red. My mother was a very adventurous cook. I always loved food, but I was actually making my living as an artist, and I was living in Paris. And I applied for the job as the art director of a magazine and got hired instead as the food editor. And my life changed overnight. So, but I've always been interested in it. And obviously, talking with Jean-Sebastien Stelly, who was the editor-in-chief of the magazine, it became obvious that we both love food a lot. And he offered me this job. And literally, my life changed overnight. So, but I've always been interested in it. In college, one year I, I cooked instead of paying rent. Everybody would give me money, and I'd have breakfast stuff in the refrigerator, and then I'd make dinner at night. So you were making your way as a cook earlier than taking on this job. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've always cooked. I mean, well, ever since I went away to college. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and it's funny because I, even though my mother was a great cook, she never really taught us how. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know; I'm sort of a natural at it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always fresh and local has always been my thing. So wherever I am, and I've lived in 19 cities on three continents, <laughs> I try to not cook like the locals, but use the local stuff. I don't know. I've just always loved it. So when you were growing up, having parents who were very interested in wine, how did they introduce you to wine? Or did you not start drinking wine until you left home? Oh, no, 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 no. We, 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 I imagine that they started pouring us small glasses when I was in junior high school, maybe. I mean, not full glasses of wine, mm -hmm. uh, but they always had wine with dinner. And it was sort of funny, by, by the time 
I went away to college and was, by then I was used to good wine. Mm -hmm. Of course, all I could afford was cheap beer, which I lived on for, for beer and eggs in college. But it's funny, I would bring friends home and my mother would prepare this elaborate meal and you're ready to take a bite. My father would start pontificating about the wine. We're like, oh God, shut up. <laughs> 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 I remember with my grandmother. Now, my grandmother was from Palermo, and she one of my favorite cities, by the way. I, I love it too. And I remember having little glass, she had a, these little stemmed glasses. I mean, not even what you would call a cordial glass or something. I mean, smaller than that. And wow. I would have my own Marsala in this glass when I was five, six years old. Yeah. And I had a biscotto and would dip it with everybody else in my little glass of Marsala. And which is the best thing, which is the best thing to do with Marsala. Actually. That's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> it went very well with your biscotto. And then we had watered down wine. And then yeah. it was less and less water. So that by the time we were 14 or 15, we had a glass of wine. Now, that's all you got. It wasn't like, yeah. you, were, you know, go drinking or anything. We Yeah, we weren't drinking either. I mean, we had small little glasses mm -hmm. in, in high school years, small little glasses. Actually, I have, amazingly, I, I have some. Bordeaux glasses. I still have four of them left, and they're very small. That belonged to my dad. Yeah, that's very nice. I mean, that I've moved all over the world and that still have. survived. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, when you were at this new job where you were the food editor, now, did that mean that you were eating at and talking about restaurants or were you expected to come up with recipes and actually discuss um, cooking and um, eating and writing articles about chickens or whatever? Well, the magazine was called Easy New York and it was about New York in French. And so... I moved Were from you Harris. Living? It, it, would you, did you have to move to New York? I moved to New York. But they moved to New York. We had a skeletal crew. All of us did a little bit of everything. And so I had to each month have a column that was a roundup of restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would write one restaurant review or one general review about this type of restaurant, say, that was happening at the time or this group of restaurants that were appearing but I did a little bit of everything I did some illustrations I took photographs and but the other thing that happened that that really changed my life again was Jean-Sebastien and I interviewed Karen Hess on the history of Thanksgiving mm -hmm. and Karen um annotated um, book of the Virginia housewife had just been published by University of South Carolina Press and she and I just really hit it off and she got me really interested in culinary history and um, and I didn't develop recipes for the magazine 
Jane Grigson developed the recipes. Okay. Um, and Jane Grigson was like Jean Sebastien's, um, I don't know, not really godmother. She, she and Jeffrey, her husband, lived in a cave in True in, in France, in the Loire Valley, near where they were like Jean Sebastien's next door neighbors. And it was his mom who got Jane to write the charcuterie book, her first book. Mm -hmm. about about food which is still one of my favorite books about food and I love the way she writes yeah great writer so yeah the the job was interesting Reagan got reelected the Frank went to hell um Mm -hmm. the magazine went bankrupt but Karen had me so interested in culinary history and I'd started researching the culinary history of the low country and a couple of blocks from where I lived, Knock Waxman had opened Kitchen Arts and Letters. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and in the meantime, my mother had died and I inherited hundreds of cookbooks from her. And so the first time I walked in Knock's store, I said, I'm going to steal your idea and go to Charleston and open a culinary bookstore. And he was utterly gracious. Um, I uh, said, you know anything about retail? And I said, oh, yeah, I ran a record store for a year. <laughs> and he said, you know, my right arm is leaving me. If you will come help me, uh, I will teach you everything I know. And oh. so I went to New York, back to New York. I had gone to South Carolina to scope out opening a store there. And Johnson & Wales, the culinary college, had opened in Charleston, so I thought it was a good time. And the restaurant scene was starting to pick up there. Mm-hmm. And so I went to New York and I apprenticed with him September to December. And then he had to have back surgery and I ended up staying until April. And so in the meantime, so from September to April, this is 85, 86, I was in Knox store and I, he walked me through the literature of food and, you know, I met everybody yeah Uh, I mean I met everybody it it was it was great fun and then I came back and opened my shop that fall in Charleston fall of 86 and so how long did you do that I did that for 13 years and Amazon was encroaching Uh uh on small booksellers and in the meantime, the biggest part of my business were grits and cornmeal sales. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how you got into that. Well, when you're an independent bookseller, you need to have a sideline of some kind or something you, you sell beside. At least that's the way it was then. So um, are, is, is that because you would say, well, I, I need more grits or whatever, so I better go to the bookstore and then you might also buy a book. Is that kind of the way it was? Uh, no, not really. It was okay. far more complicated than that. When I moved back to Charleston, you couldn't find stone ground, whole grain, what I grew up calling country grits um, and cornmeal uh, anywhere. I mean, you might find a bag um, in a paper bag on the shelf of a health food store with no milling date. Uh-huh. Um, but 
there was no one really doing it. And so I knew that if I were going to help revive this lost cuisine that I was finding in my research, that I would need to also have these products. So I either went to or tried the products of 30 mills before I found someone, um, a, a couple who were growing the right type of corn and growing it the right way and grinding it between blue granite stones, not adding anything to it or taking anything away. And, um, and so I started selling grits and cornmeal. And then when my sister came to, to work for me, um, and she ran the shop the last seven years. She said, you need to wholesale this, you know, these restaurants, you need to get it in the restaurants. And so she really helped build the business up. And we had customers in all 50 states. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that, more than anything, I think it's the thing that I'm most proud of. Yeah, yeah. Having of having been at the forefront of this revival of heirloom grains, there wasn't a single restaurant in Charleston serving shrimp and grits. Yeah. And actually that name shrimp and grits, that's, I mean, the, Bill Neal did that. And mm -hmm. he was in Carborough, North Carolina. North Carolina, Carolina, yeah. Carolina yeah. You know? yeah. But no one was, was serving grits. I mean, little, uh, yeah, a Waffle House and places like that had, Industrial grids. Industrial grids, which, you know, have been ground to smithereens and they're actually heated up in the steel rollers and they taste like the package. It's no wonder Yankees hated them, you know. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're right to be proud because I think that is a fabulous legacy that you, I mean, that that you did it so basically single-handedly um, no, I, it wasn't single-handedly, like, and, and, you know, and it's it's like this whole thing of low country cooking. Now it's everywhere. Right. Nobody right. had heard of it. Uh -huh. Nobody had heard of it. I mean, I, I did help put that word on the map, although magazines and newspapers still insist on writing it as two words, which drives me crazy because the low countries, that's Netherlands. That's, you know, <laughs> that's, not, that's not South Carolina, Georgia coast. Right, right. But, but, you know, I, I never like to take too much credit because there's this arc of things happening. And after Hurricane Hugo hit Charleston in 1989, which was devastating, totally devastating, 60,000 of us out of our homes, I was out of my home and shop for a year. What happened was Charleston had this renaissance um, Charleston had always had this patina of, of development, not even development of, of whitewash, <laughs> um, where, you know, there would be this one house that would get done and then another house would get done. But after, after Hurricane Hugo, the whole city was gussied up at the same time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Rents went sky high and people from off started moving there. And the restaurant scene took off. And, and so I would go to these chefs and say, you're not even using local shrimp. What is wrong with you? They said, well, I need them all to be the same size. I can get these 
farm raised ones from Indonesia. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to do this. You need to use the heads and you need to use whole grain grits. And they all started doing it. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was these young chefs too, wanting to embrace this fresh and local. I mean, Alice Waters had been doing all this in California for years, since the seventies. But we're talking, you know, we're talking the nineties in South Carolina, but it was happening all over the country. And it was, it was an exciting time. So, you know, I hesitate to take too much credit, although I am proud of my efforts, my own efforts. Right. And so then you left the bookshop I left the bookshop. I went online and I continued to wholesale grits and cornmeal and sell my own books until this last move overseas, in which case I I actually, uh, I say I gave my business to my niece, but I actually, the lawyers insisted that I sell it to her for $10. So, (laughs) Um, yes, well, it was but it, continued it was to ride. a gift as you could get, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, but I've continued to ride and I continue to take pictures. And you know, I started a blog in 2007. And it's been well, fun. And, and you had a, a good long while, like learning about olive oil and doing other things like that, which. That was a very exciting time. The 90s, the 90s were amazing. You know, I had four books come out cookbooks come out in the 90s mm-hmm. I was one of the fortunate journalists who the International Olive Oil Council sent on press junkets once or twice a year got to go all over the Mediterranean all over North Africa Portugal Spain Lebanon Italy France learning all about olive oil and the idea well, I mean they spent a fortune the the olive oil council it's now called the Olive Council, I believe, but it was based in Madrid. And they spent a fortune bringing these food writers from all over the world, not just the United States, mm-hmm. to write about olive oil. Because before they did that, people didn't really know about olive oil, didn't know about extra virgin. People just didn't know about it. I mean, they knew that it was a necessary ingredient if you're cooking Mediterranean food mm-hmm. and of course you know Mediterranean chefs who'd opened restaurants all over the world knew about it but it, it wasn't on your grocery store shelf in Orangeburg South Carolina and now I guarantee you if you go to Orangeburg South Carolina there'll be a dozen or more extra virgin oils in the A&P if there's well, still A&Ps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there are a few, but not many. You know, I grew up with olive oil because my grandmother was from Palermo. So I don't have the same perspective on there not being olive oil because she was right. very pers- persnickety about it. But I can imagine that, that that was the case. But in your book, when you talk about China and how you can get olive oil extra virgin olive oil in China. I just think that that's amazing. You can get it anywhere. It's anywhere here in Cambodia with its torturous history. I I can buy any number of brands of extra virgin oil. You know, I, I should really use this opportunity to tell people about oil because people don't know about it. If you would like to hear about oil. Sure, tell us, yes. 
You know, there are more varieties of olives than there are of grapes, but unlike grapes and wine, they, they don't age well. And so mm -hmm. heat, light, and time are olive oil's enemies. And there are so many different types of oils. Very few of them are varietal, that is made from one variety, some are. And, you know, these big, bold, stringent oils of Tuscany, that's one style. They're, they're very mild oils from the south of, of Spain and from Liguria in, in northwestern Italy. But the main thing that you should know when you go to get oil is you want young oil. You want to buy an oil that's in a dark container and you want to buy oil that has its processing date on it. Mm -hmm. And if you really want a good oil, um, you should use an oil that is estate modeled, mm -hmm. uh, where everything is from the same farm, which means it's the, the olives are probably ground shortly after picking. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm a spokesperson for the Olive Oil Council, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's an important thing to know, especially if you think that you're getting certain benefits from using it, but because it hasn't been properly stored or it's old, you aren't getting those benefits. And so you're fooling yourself. So you have to know. Yeah. And there's a lot of adulterated oil out there right now too. Mm -hmm. And so I always look for single source oils and they're marvelous oils from many different places. Now you can get good oils out of California and Australia Texas. And, and Texas, yes. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I love some oils from Tunisia. My favorite oil is actually is a varietal oil, um, Tajaska. It's a very, very mild um, olive that's from Liguria. It's the tradition. It's also the, it's, it, it's also the, the oil from Southern France right across the border. I, I think Picheline and Tajaska are very closely related if they're not the same. Um, but my friends who live in Tuscany and Umbria say, oh my God, it doesn't have any flavor. It's, <laughs> it's we want these big bold oil. Right. It depends on what you're using it for. If I'm making a cake, I, I want a, a fruity, mild oil. I mm -hmm. don't want that assertive green flavor. Mm -hmm. That vegetal flavor that, yes, I, I know what you mean. Um, and, you know, I talk about olive oil a lot because honestly, I'm more of an Italian cook than I am a Southern one. It's, it's funny. Uh, it's, it, I really learned to cook in, in, when I lived in Europe. Um, well, I love in your book, when you talk about making mayonnaise in the mortar and pestle, I, yeah. I just think that that's really an amazing thing, uh, not even with a whisk, but with a mortar and pestle. Yeah, and I think it, frankly, I think it's easier. <laughs> 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 well, for one thing, the mortar doesn't move around. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, have, I have this wonderful mortar that I brought back from, from Liguria that weighs 17 pounds. It's great. It's marble. Um, uh -huh. yeah. Traditional one. And does it is it has a, a wooden pestle or a, a marble? Uh, it has an olive, an olive wood pestle, which is traditional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 
So how long were you there and did you come out really speaking Italian? That's a funny thing. I was there off and on for, well, I was back and forth between Paris and Genoa, uh -huh. Italy, um, and about two and a half years, three months, three months, three months, three months, three months, three months. When I, I fell in love with an Italian and moved to Italy and not speaking Italian, and we used French at home. So my French got pretty good. Uh -huh. uh, but as, in spite of this Southern accent, when I'm in France, people think I'm from Northern Italy, which cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided when I went to Italy that I was not going to study Italian. Mm -hmm. because I had this academic bias with French and I never really had conversational courses, even though I minored in it. We always just like read, you know, Descartes and Moliere and Rabelais, all this old stuff. And, right. and it was weird when, when I first started writing for the French magazine, Jean Sebastien said my first article Jean-Sebastien said, your French is so weird. And, and I said, is it bad? And he said, no, it's not bad. It's just 18th century. Right, it's well, archaic. <laughs> it's just what I, I said, well, it's what I know. So when I moved to Italy, I didn't, we used French. And I'd been there about three months when I first moved there. And my friend, Esther DeMiro, who's a feminist film scholar, still a very dear friend. This is 40 years ago, mind you. She said in French, and she's like, John, why are, you've been here three months. Why are we speaking French? I know you're going out to the store and buying stuff and going and getting your haircut. Uh -huh. I said, oh, I don't know. I guess I haven't gotten drunk enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Alberto, my boyfriend at the time, says, I have just the thing. And he pulled out a bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey. I'd never seen it in the house. We never drank whiskey. And we proceeded to drink whiskey and I started speaking Italian. And <laughs> I, guess I just absorbed it by osmosis or something or via alcohol. <laughs> that would be a nice way to learn languages. To yeah, just my, there and in bed, there and in bed, you know, uh -huh. that's. Yeah. On the street, and on street and in the in between the sheets. Right. That's um, <laughs> what I say. But yeah, but it's 40 years and both my French and my Italian are, are really poor now. Really, really poor. I've a, a, a French couple live next door to us and they have two little boys. And when he first moved in here, um, the younger one was uh, three and a half. And he said to me one day in French, John, you speak really bad French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really wonderful when a three-year-old tells you that. <laughs> well, you know, they have no filters. So right. that's true. That's Which is good, you know. Yeah. yeah. It was honest, I guess. Yeah. They speak yeah. the truth. Yeah. So we're getting on to the close to the end. And I want, I want to talk a little bit about your book. Tell us when it will be available. The release date is December 9th. And this book is being printed in hardcover. And it's also available as an ebook 
it's being printed in the United States. So I don't think there'll be any holdups. I, I imagine we'll have it on time. Um, it, the book is 42 essays mm -hmm. that span the time from when I opened the shop to the present. And it's not all food. There's all kinds of things. There's travel. There's, there's an article about dance. There's an essay about fishing. There's an essay about insomnia and death and lots of different things <laughs> there. And so were you asked to put this together? Did you decide it, that this was something that you wanted to do? How did that come, come about? And the way it came about was I was gathering, trying to get all of my work in one place mm -hmm. to give to the archives at the College of Charleston. So that because there are so many of these things on different computers and, and just some things were done for magazines, some things were done for the blog. And I also was ready to shut down the blog. But if you mm -hmm. shut down, then it's all lost. And so I was trying to print everything out and put it on disc and was talking to my editor at the University of North Carolina Press and who had published the 20th anniversary edition of my first book of Papa John's Low Country Cooking. And she said, I want you to talk to Aurora Bell at the University of South Carolina Press. So I talked to Aurora. And I said, I've got all this stuff. I've got 350 essays. And she said, you know, I was going to call you anyway because I want you to write the foreword to a new edition of Karen Hess's Carolina Rice Kitchen, mm -hmm. which I did, which is out now. And, and so I said, well, I have 350 essays. And she said, could you send me maybe a third? So I sent her 118. In the meantime, I was dancing at my birthday party and totally ripped up my Achilles tendon. Um, uh, I had a five centimeter gap between my ankle and my calf muscle. And oh. so I was incapacitated for several months. And so for several months, she and I went through the essays and narrowed it down to 42. Well, it's a wonderful read. And I feel like I know you so much better because I read it. Um, of course, it still you know, raises you know, lots of questions. What? You know, Target, Target is marketing it as a memoir. Uh, no, it's a, a biography, an autobiography, which is perhaps my least favorite genre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is memoirish. It is full of memories, that's for sure. But I don't know. It's well, just never <laughs> it, it, it. I think that <laughs> memories support what you're writing about it's it's not just you saying i want you to know this about me kind of thing it's more no, this this supports whatever it is you're writing about and and whether it is about transylvania or fishing or dancing whatever it, it's i'm always and i always have been far more interested in the big picture mm -hmm. than in the details um you know i've done i've written recipes for for 35 years now and that's very detail oriented uh -huh. and this is this is this is detail oriented in the sense of the big picture like trying to create a sense of place around each dish or thing i'm talking about did you, did you have to do a lot of editing of your essays or does it pretty uh, much appear the way 
it was it was published. They are almost the way they were written originally. Mm -hmm. There were some passages that were too bloggy. Uh huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> Where I was talking to my blog readers, right? Um, and we took out the blogginess. Um, uh huh. Uh huh. But the rest of it is is pretty much the way it was written. Yeah. I, I, Aurora was a great editor too. She she was really great. It's as I say in the in, in the acknowledgments, the book is very much as much hers as it is mine. Even though I wrote it, I mean, she mm -hmm. really she was very clever on which ones to choose. I mean, there was one I really wanted in there, and she's like, nope. And I and the book is better for it not being in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love editors. I, I feel that way too, that they, they have a sense of what is right. And because they're not you, they can see it in a way that you can't. Yes. Absolutely. I know she was, she was very concerned about there being so many um, Italian recipes in the book there. I mean, I think at least a third of the recipes are Italian or Mediterranean and I said but that's how I cook so yeah that did <laughs> <happen to me. laughs> yeah. so I, I really want to thank you so much for your time and I hope that it's not an outrageous time where you are um so that um, well it was I got up at 5 a.m so that's not so bad I usually get up at six so okay okay well, we're we're exactly on the other side of the world from here, yeah, in yeah. Cambodia. So, no, but it's been great fun. It's great talking with you again. I enjoyed it very much too. Thanks so very much. Thank you. Okay, that'll give us a little dead air there, so I can find that place when I'm editing. <laughs> Great. So it was fun. Well, that was like sort of all over the place, like the book is. So, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. fine. I, but I, I, think I, I, th I go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I can always call Kathy and see whether she, uh, or email and find out whether she thinks that we should hold it or if it's okay to just let it go into the because you can order, you can pre-order it. So that you can pre-order. You can pre-order it from Amazon, from Target, from University of South Carolina Press. You can get your local booksellers to to do it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. Well, I'm going to let you get to your day. I'm going to be on the other side of the day. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the sun's up now. So <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really thank you so appreciate much. it. I enjoyed this a lot. It's good to talk Me to too. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank See you. you. Okay. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.